And welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this evening and every Saturday evening for education, awareness, enlightenment, and entertainment, primarily surrounding the issues of the aftermath of crime. And so I say good evening to all of you this first uh, Saturday in April, Um, and I I welcome my, my veteran listeners as well as any new listeners, and um, so I, I want to welcome you and say that this evening we have the pleasure of um, having um, a very accomplished journalist from Los Angeles and um, as, aspiring author or uh, author who has, uh, will soon be having her, her first book published solo, but she also has one that she's co-authored. So we're going to be talking about a couple of different things. Um, but before I do, just let me um, welcome in Delilah. Good evening, Delilah. How are things in Myrtle Beach? Oh, hi, Donna. Everything's great in Myrtle Beach. It's a beautiful sunny day before Easter. So um, it's, I'm just enjoying this lovely weather after days and days of, of gloomy <laughs> rain. So now we're you know we're coming into spring, and uh, hopefully the whole rest of the country will be getting the same enjoyment out of the weather. But it's well, it's wonderful to have another author from Wild Blue Press on. They've done such a fantastic job of pulling yeah. this all together and, you know, collecting the stable of authors that they have. And um, I, I wanted to mention, too, it, I've seen it on Facebook. They do, I think about once, maybe twice a year, they do um, – what they call a writing salon in the San Diego area. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if anybody is an aspiring writer or just wants to brush up on their skills, they, you know, a lot of the writers, Steve Jackson and Caitlin Rother, and I'm I'm not positive who else will be there, but it's just such a wonderful opportunity. So go on Facebook to the Wild Blue Press or go to their um, website at wildbluepress.com and check into the details of it because I think it's just a wonderful opportunity um, to meet these people and to learn from them. It's it's great. Yeah, I, I think it's like a, a full week of, of writing and activities and, and gatherings, but perhaps uh, Carolina Sarasa, who is our guest, she may know a, a bit about that. Um so, um, yes, I want to thank Steve, and unfortunately this kind of end, ends up our series. Who knows what, what may come in the future? I hope that we'll still be buddies and friends, and maybe we can do a different kind of collaboration in the future. But without further ado, then, let's welcome Carolina Sarasa. She is um, an award-winning uh, journalist from the Los Angeles area, and um she she is as I said was is also an author. Um, and it's always interesting to hear how they kind of got into the profession that they are now and and what leads them to writing. Um, and then we'll get into the actual books that we're going to be talking about. 
Um, so, um, Carolina, good evening and welcome to Shattered Life. It's a pleasure to have you. Hi, Donna. Hi, Delilah. Very excited to be here this afternoon. Also, a lovely weather here in L.A. as always. You can't <laughs> complain about that here. I lived in Las Vegas, lived in Corpus Christi, and here is like the, just the best weather. And just what you were saying about inspiring authors, I my first book is coming up next week on April 7th, and uh, for me as a writer, it's a dream come true. I always wanted to write a book since I was a little girl. I always dreamt of I used to pass by the bookstores and just stare at the books and picture my name one day uh, on the cover of a book. And it's just very exciting. It's, uh, it's humbling that I'm able to tell stories. Uh, you were saying what inspires a person to tell a story. There's so, many, there's so many wonderful things out there that you can talk about. And I am a television reporter. And as you know, the, the time is so limited. You only have a minute and a half, two minutes to tell someone's story. So my fight every day at the office is I'm asking the producers, can you please give me 30 more seconds? I have more <laughs> things to say about this story. And they're like, no, we have other stories to tell. So when it comes about writing a book, it's just a privilege to be able to not have a limit as to how many words, how many details, how many pictures you can give about a story. And uh, the first book is about domestic violence, and it's still so sad how high the statistics are. And I feel that they're just statistics. Unless we write about them and we personalize them, then they stop becoming statistics and they and they start becoming stories, and that's the importance of books, that they stay there forever. Yeah, for, for sure. And, um, you know, I, I can really relate to what you're saying because as a, you know, as an inspiring writer myself, I mean, I write, I don't have a book published yet, but we try to paint a picture so that, so that the 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 account, because it's a true account, does does come alive. And um, so you know, it must it's got to be very frustrating to say when you go to work and you have two minutes, and then as a writer you have the luxury of taking a lot of time to get it just right. Didn't you tell me when we were chatting one of our earlier conversations, the particular book um, that you co-wrote took what was it five years to write? Yeah, it took us five years to write. It happened, uh, the murder happened in 2010, and as soon as that case happened, I got very close with the family, and I got close with my co-author, and we started writing the book, but then we thought that within a year, a year and a half, the trial of the men that murdered the, the victim was going to be over, but it took, uh, the trial was postponed seven times. So we wanted wow. this. This in this case, it, there's, there was no way to have a happy ending to the book, but at least we wanted to have a justice. And we wanted to have that the reader feels that the, the justice was made. So actually, our first publisher got very tired of waiting, and our first publisher uh, just dropped us, and they said, "You either publish right now, or we don't publish you." And we're like, "No, we cannot do this. We need to have the final chapter of it being the trial." especially for the family, for the reader to mm-hmm. feel that, okay, this horrible crime happened, now there's closure for the family. So, yes, it took five years, happened 2010. The trial was only six months ago, and now on April 7th, the book is coming out. And it's um, when I got the book a couple of weeks ago, I got the first copy. I didn't know what my reaction was going to be, and 
I just ha I just saw this envelope on the on the mail and I just started crying and I cried and I cried and I cried. For me, um to be able to tell someone's story and especially such a tragic story is just mm-hmm. heartbreaking. But I feel that if I can change one life, if if the book is about domestic violence, if one woman can say, Okay, I'm gonna ma- I'm gonna put a stop to my relationship or a man says, You know what, I need to stop being abusive, then it was worth those five years. Right. Well, uh, that, that's very that's very touching, and I, I can just imagine you opening that after all your blood, sweat, and tears, you and your co-author. But before we before we get into the meat of the of the, of the matter, let me give the promotion um, a couple of times during the hour so that we don't forget, because that's also important for our listeners. Okay. Um, um, coincidentally, another one one of your colleagues um, and a member of Wild Blue Press, um, Bradley Nickel, his his book that he he shared with us, um, I don't know, maybe a month ago or so, Delilah, is that right? Um, called Repeat Offender, where he was um, that also took place in Las Vegas. That is coming out uh, in uh, April fourteenth. So as a promotion. Um, Steve Jackson um, and his staff have uh, created this promotion. What we're going to do this evening is, um, with your permission, Carolina, as well, we're going to give away 10 copies of of your book, The Mur- uh, um, Dancing, Dancing on Her Grave, um, The Murder of a Las Vegas Showgirl, uh, and te- and uh, 10 copies of Repeat Offender by Bradley Nichol. Uh, to the first 20 listeners who write an email to wild to wildbluepress.com and put shattered lives in the subject line of the email you will get um these you will get a copy of uh, of these books for free if you're one of the uh 20 first listeners of this show so what a deal to get in on the ground floor of your brand new book which is 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 a fascinating account so um, thank you, thank you for allowing us to do this. Um, we really appreciate it, and hopefully, I'll I'll try to say it again so so that we don't close out the show and uh, people don't forget. Um, now, with re- with respect to the to the um, whole topic area, how did how did you go about selecting this as your story? As a journalist, you come across, especially in L.A. or any big city. There are so many stories that you could tell. How did you go about finding this, you know, and and going about the process before we talk about the actual book? You know what, Donna, I think it was meant to be. I believe in destiny, and as I said before, I always wanted to write a book, but I had no clue how to. So uh, when, when I first started reporting about uh, Debbie's case, I found out that I had so much information. I would look at the other station reports, and they would just be very quick and talk about very little details of what happened, especially because of the time constraint that we have on the newscast. And I had so much information. The family and I, the sister and I got close, and she started telling me so many wonderful things about this this lady that unfortunately had passed away. And I just had so much information to tell. I was able to do a story for a show, which is, it's a national show for Univision, and they're, they're like the equivalent to 60 Minutes in Spanish, and um, it's called Aquí Ahora, Here and Now. It's a news magazine mm-hmm. show, 
and they have like a eight to ten minute gap for each story. So for me, that was great. I'm, I'm finally able to tell eight minutes about a story compared to one minute. So <laughs> this is how my co-author Diana Montaigne, a great journalist, uh, published author who lives in Daytona Beach, she contacted me, and she's my angel. She said, hey, Carolina, I just watched this show, and I see that you have so much information, and she offered if we could co-author the book, and that's how it all started. Uh, Diana and I, we, I, I don't have the pleasure to meet Diana in person yet, but she says uh, she's from Cuba. She's Cuban-American, and I'm from Colombia. She says that I'm her Colombian daughter, and I say she's my Cuban mother. We speak on the phone very often, and we just got this great relationship and also with the victim's family. And Diana, she always puts the, vic- the victim first in her books. So it was just great to have a mentor, someone with such knowledge of how to write a book. I wish, honestly, I wish that I could do a book on every story that I cover. I feel that I have my hands tied when I cannot tell more information. I actually opened a blog. So I can, on the stories I cover on the newscast, I can talk a little bit more about them. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's how it all started, with Diana sending me a message through Facebook. Do they they give you permission at at your station um, if you do a two-minute story and then you can continue to blog and and continue and give, give the audience updates? Is that your compensation for only being able to talk about two minutes? Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, unless there's a conflict of interest, I try to avoid talking about politics and, politics and stuff because I don't want to get into any trouble. But, yeah, talking about all these stories, unless there's a conflict of interest with, uh, like, something biased, I can always go ahead and talk a little bit more about the stories and my personal concerns on mm-hmm. because on TV and, of course, on on any media it's hard to give your opinion. You cannot as a journalist. But in a blog, you can put more a little bit about your opinion as a human being because, after all, reporters are also – I'm also a woman. I'm also a sister. I'm also a daughter. So to be able to tell a little bit more about my point of view, it feels it feels very good. Yeah, and, and, and being a personality on TV, I would imagine that that, that also – that 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 helps when you're when you're working with the families too because there there is that recognition and maybe that maybe they would trust you to be a little more forthcoming. I don't know. Have you found that with with the um, um, his, Hispanic community um, in your area in LA? I mean, are you do you have a close relationship with your listeners, so to speak? Yeah, uh, it's uh, our our viewers are great, and especially keep in mind that our viewers are immigrants, are people that countries. So sometimes it's a it's a, it's a woman that left her native her native native Mexico, and she's by herself in the United States. So with the Hispanic community, I feel there's a little bit more intimacy because they are alone in this country and they watch the news or they read the newspaper, and that's how they feel connected to their roots. So to them, um, the role that a Spanish journalist plays in the lives of a family is great. It's, it's immense. They always they, they always trust you. That's why, of course, as a journalist, you always have to be very careful. But with Spanish, um, you have to also educate them a lot because we don't speak the language perfect. We some A lot of them don't have documents. 
So we just have to guide them. And with them, it's just complete trust. And that's, uh, it's just humbling that they, that they trust us so much. Yeah, well, that that's good, and I, you know, I I think it's wonderful that you were able to forge this relationship. Let's talk a little bit, bit about Debbie Flores and her family, and and what what the dynamic dynamic was there, and you know, a bit of her background before we talk about what actually happened with her. Yeah, well, um, Debbie's family did not live in Las Vegas. Uh, they were. Um, in different parts of the country, um, some families in Puerto Rico, some families in Baltimore, in Atlanta, in Georgia. So when the case happened, they all went to, most of them went to Las Vegas, especially the sister. She's a great, a great girl and loved her little sister so much. And she just started coming to Vegas a lot during the investigation. Um, about two, three days after Debbie's disappearance, that's when I met Celeste. Celeste um, was just so worried and needed information. And, of course, it, is, it was an ongoing investigation, and the police department did not have many things to say, many details. So she got very close with not only me, but with all the reporters from Las Vegas. I think whenever Celeste to Las Vegas, she has a lot of friends now. She became so popular on Facebook and social media because everyone just got so drawn to this case. So that's how I got close to Celeste. And, uh, now, who, who is Celeste? Who is Celeste? Celeste is the victim's yeah. sister. Okay, so she was Debbie's sister. And, yeah, she's and Debbie's the older sister. Debbie Flores. Okay. Debbie Flores, yeah. And she's, uh, she's the older sister, the only sister. So she she was the one that went to Las Vegas many times, and I got very close to her. She was mm-hmm. really so worried about finding Debbie. And the police at that time, as I said, it was an ongoing investigation, so they did not really have a lot of information for the family. They did not know where the victim was, what had happened to the victim. So Celeste relied not only on me, but she relied on all the media reports to know that at least the community was actively looking for her daughter. I see. And um, so what... What did she do prior to going to Las Vegas? Can you tell? Because I find that there, the contrast of what she was did do and then what she ended up doing, kind of hard to understand. In that she kind of changed her her entire lifestyle midstream, right? Because it was her dream of being a, a Las Vegas showgirl. Yeah, Debbie. She had a natural talent for dancing since she was a little girl. But she was also a very good student, a straight-A, dean-list student. So she went to law school, and she was an attorney. She had a doctorate degree. She had a master's degree. She was a very well-educated woman. She spoke three languages. She spoke Portuguese, Spanish, and, of course, English. And uh, when she was 30, and I'm under 30 years old now, when a woman turns 30, I don't know if it happened to you, um, we kind of have this like, conflict inside our head and, and we kind of start thinking, am I doing what I wanted to do? When I was 15 years old, I always thought, oh, by the time I'm 30, I want to do this and that. And I think that went through Debbie's head. And she said, I do not want to be an attorney. I do not want to be in an office all day doing paperwork. I want to be a dancer. So she told her family, she told her mother, her sister, I am leaving Baltimore and I'm going to Las Vegas to find my dream of becoming a dancer. They said, no, don't go to Las Vegas. 
Las Vegas is called Sin City for a reason. And this is when she moved with a boyfriend who was also a dancer. They moved to Las Vegas, and this is when she starts dancing at different nightclubs and finally lands a very good job at the hotel Luxor, the one that looks like a pyramid at the show Fantasy. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So she just had natural talent. It wasn't like she was a – was she a dancer all of her life, I mean, when she wasn't doing her attorney work? She never went to school for dancing, but she always danced when she was in high school, and she actually became one of the cheerleaders for NFL, for the Redskins. She went to that show, um, So You Think You Can Dance, and she was one of the finalists. So imagine if Debbie really had gone to professional dancing school, she uh-huh. would have done a lot of things. You can you, you can actually go to YouTube, and if you go to Debbie Flores Narvaez, there's many videos of her of her, of her demo tape is still uh, uh, is still active online, where you can see this woman dancing. She just had a natural talent for dancing, and she was beautiful. Mm-hmm. How old was she when she made this transition, Carolina? She was almost 30 years old, and when she got murdered, she was 31. So it was only almost two years that she was in Las Vegas. But still, isn't that kind of, just as as someone in sports, isn't someone in their 30s in that profession kind of old? (laughs) I'm just asking. Yeah, and uh, you know what, yes, you're right. And I've actually gotten that question many times. Um, Yes, but she didn't look 30. She looked. She had an amazing body, and and the girls that dance at Fantasy that show are not that young either, and mm-hmm. it's mostly uh, they all have very sculpture, very nice bodies, and the show is it's a very sensual show. Um, also, the boyfriend, the boyfriend, the one that ended up killing Debbie, he was also in his thirties. Las Vegas community. I've talked to. I've gotten to know the Las Vegas community, uh, the dancers of the Las Vegas community, and it's actually very hard for them to find jobs. It's kind of coming to Hollywood, to L.A. to become an actor. You think, oh, when I become an actor, let me go to L.A., let me go to Hollywood. No, it's hard because there's so many beautiful, attractive, talented. Same thing in Las Vegas. Actually talking to one of Debbie's friends, he said that you go to a casting for a show and 300 people show up, and they're all beautiful and talented. And at the end of the day, who gets the job? So actually, Mm -hmm. the salaries are very low because you have so many people looking for that same job. Mm -hmm. So was she kind of in the right place at the right time that she got chosen out of, you know, a 300-person casting call for, for dancing or something? Yeah, she was just at the right place, the right time, just how you say it. Um, she she was a lucky girl. Whatever she wanted, she got in life. She wanted to be an attorney. She did it. She wanted mm-hmm. to be a, become a dancer, move to Las Vegas. She did it. And I think, I, I think without knowing Debbie in person, um, but with doing so much research on her, I feel that that's one of the things that happened to her. She had everything going for her. Whatever she wanted to do, good or bad, she got her way. So finding this man that did not really want to um, commit a relationship with her, she couldn't understand why. Why not? Why is he not committing to me? And that's why she continued being in this very turbulent relationship with this guy after she knew that 
he wasn't faithful and after he verbally basically abused her because she wasn't she wasn't used to having no in her life. She was a very mm-hmm. lucky girl. So she in the in the beginning she was the aggressor, if you will, or the initiator of the relationship because she wanted it with him and 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 then he he said okay, but then as the relationship uh, continued on, it it took a turn uh, in terms of being controlling and abusive and that kind of thing. I wouldn't say she was the aggressor. Um, she was a girl that had a e temper. Her own sister described her as a firecracker. She was a girl that um, she would not take for no for an answer, but she was a good girl. Um, he is the he 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 was the one that abused her many times. Actually, the police got to their house. They didn't live together, but they got to his house many times on domestic violence calls. A lot of the time, a lot of the times, the police got there and they were they were they were both uh, complaining. He was complaining that he that that she hit him. She was saying the opposite. And when that happens, a police officer gets to your house. The husband saying, my wife beat me, and the wife says, he beat me, they either arrest both of them or none of them. So a lot of, the, a lot of the times, a lot of the calls were like that. He said that she was the one that assaulted him. But there is mm-hmm. no proof that she was the one that did that. At the end of the day, um, she was the victim. He, he was the victim? No, she was the victim. Oh, she, she was, right. was the victim. I mean... But was was he more about um, control, uh, you know, emotional control, or was it physical abuse, or um, you know, monitoring her her comings and goings and finances and things? What to what extent did he go in terms of his abuse and control? Um, in many ways, uh, verbally abusive with her. Uh, one of the times. And this is actually there's a police report on this. He got arrested for this. He, um, they were in the car and they had this argument, and he broke his car's windshield with Debbie's forehead. There's a report of him beating her. There's uh, this was never confirmed, but uh, there's many reports of her being pregnant, and he um, hit her really bad in her stomach, and she lost the baby. Um, actually, his roommate was able to say in court that, yes, that he was very abusive with Debbie. Um, yes, yes, she was, not a, she, she, she was not a woman that would just stand there. She would fight back. So that's why he always said that she also was aggressive towards him. But mm-hmm. he was the kind of guy that um, they said that he had seven girlfriends, seven and he yep. did not deny that. Simultaneously? So yeah, yeah. And all of them from the dancing community. All of them beautiful, talented girls. Mm-hmm. Well, so they met. They met on the job, and, right? Uh, and so he was, she was one of his harem or whatever, if you want to call it that. What, what was this guy like in his background? And, I mean, but other than, you know, his his record with her, what – what, what can you tell us about about him as the, being the perpetrator? Well, actually, with him, um, this was a guy that was very talented with dancing. He was born in New Jersey. He actually went to Juilliard School of Dance with full scholarship. Uh-huh. If anyone uh-huh. knows about Juilliard, they know that it's, it's hard to get in, and especially to get a full scholarship. 
So this yes. guy that was very dedicated for his career, he left uh, New York, and he le- and he went to Reno. This is in northern Nevada, and they also have uh, an area where they have casinos, somewhere like Las Vegas, but like twenty percent of it is smaller, but they have very good shows. So he left. He was already married by that time, and had two and had two little boys. So he left from New York. He left to Reno with his wife and two kids. He started doing really well, and everyone started telling him his name. His name is Jason. Jason, if you really want to make it, do not stay in Reno. You have to go down to Nevada. You have to go down to to to, to Las Vegas to Southern Nevada, because that's where really the big casinos and the big shows are. He, when he was in Reno, he did have domestic violence issues with his wife, and this is why this is why his wife left him. His wife uh, now lives in California. Um, we were ne- we were never able to talk with her. He didn't go to court, um, and he didn't take any of our phone calls, even though we tried many times. But he they were separated, and he lives to Las Vegas. When he gets to Las Vegas, I guess he finds that he was he was a very attractive man, and you could see by all his social media pictures that he was in love with himself. You could see on his very MySpace back then. Huh? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He was a narcissist. You could see like on his MySpace profile, there's a picture of him showing his six pack, and he it was all over him. He, he was all over um, dating sites looking for girlfriends. He had the most beautiful girls always around him. Like, he knew that girls liked him, and that's why he took advantage of that. And maybe when he was growing up, he never saw that in him. So when he gets to Las Vegas and a party town, and he sees these women after him, he he, he, he was just amazed by how many girls were following him. And Debbie, imagine, and a well-educated, beautiful, talented girl that was just after him, he always promised her, I am going to change. Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm wrong that I have these other girlfriends, but I'm going to leave them. I love you. And then a couple of days went by, and she found out that, no, he actually kept on seeing the other women. So this is why she kind of became obsessed with him. And even though he abused her, she kept on going back with him. And he also kept on looking for her during, during the trial, the prosecutors asked him many times because he said, oh, I killed her uh, trying to defend myself in self-defense. And they said, well, you could also have told Debbie, don't come look for me anymore. And there's Facebook messages of him when she said, I want to put a stop to the relationship unless you want to be committed to me only. Say, yeah. And then he will send her a message again, oh, baby, I miss you. Let's see each other again. And how the mm-hmm. relationship came, kept on on and off, on and off for a year and a half. Well, did, did this go on with the other six girlfriends too? Was he? Was it like a rotation basis? Was he constantly juggling women, or at some point he focused in focused in on on Debbie primarily? No, in the beginning, Debbie thought that she was the only girl, but then Las Vegas, it's a it's a city that has a lot of people, but most of them are tourists. But the local community really get to know each other, especially the dancing community. It's, it's, it's small. It's relatively small. So within a couple of months, two, three months of them dating, she found out that he had another girlfriend at another show called Sumanity, also from Cirque du Soleil. 
So mm-hmm. it, it was a matter of her finding out. I don't think he was ever committed to her 100%. Mm-hmm. Wow. Is it, Delilah, doesn't this sound like so many of the stories that you might have heard from Susan in years past, Susan Murphy Milano? Oh, definitely. You know, it's it's kind of a classic situation where, you know, you have a, a, a man who who thinks he's a lot more than what he really is and can play it off on, you know, several, you, keeping all of those balls juggling in the air is, is not an easy feat without someone knowing about the other one. And for him to be juggling six different girlfriends at one time, um, <laughs> seven that's, and a that's wife. pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I, it, I, it takes a lot of talent to hide, especially with women, you know, us women, we are detectives. We we know everything. <laughs> we know the husband's password. They always say, oh, how do you know? Of course we know. We know the password. We know the email address. We know everything. We are born mm-hmm. detectives. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, that, that brings me to the thought of um, there must have been something special about this. I mean, we, we like to call it intimate partner violence because we, we think it's a little bit more descriptive. Um, gets it out of the household realm, you know, domestic violence with the kerchief and all that stuff. But um, why, why, why this story? What was it that intrigued you, um, or, or did it just kind of come up because you knew you 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 did a story, a, a journalistic story, and and you got to know the family? I mean, you must have reported on hundreds of these kinds of stories, but. What, what was it that intrigued you about this? Was it this this relationship and, and, and this man that juggled seven different women, or was it the Las Vegas component? What there, there's something special here, right? Yeah, there were there were many components of why I got so close to this story. I guess because I was the first reporter in Las Vegas to cover the case, and also. Um, there were so many changes because at first they found the car a week after, then they call a press conference, and they, then, they, then his best friend comes to the police. There were so many developments to the stories that I got to do so many of them regularly. And unfortunately, on Monday, let's say, for example, I cover a car accident. Then on Tuesday, we cover Obamacare. Then on Wednesday, so that there's different stories and I don't get to follow the, and I don't get to unfortunately follow up on them because the mm-hmm. story is just it's a story of the day that we have to follow up on. So right. with, with with Debbie's story, it was more it was more than a month of me probably doing a story every day, and then we got a lot of national attention on this story when when it happened. Doctor Phil did an hour, an hour special on this recently. Oh, Doctor Discovery. Okay. Yeah. So everybody was just so drawn to the was just so drawn to the case. We st- I used to work for for a local station in in Las Vegas, and our network was just asking us to do more and more and more. So the more I did stories, first the closer I got to the family, and second I stopped seeing Debbie as a character of my story to start seeing her as my friend. Right now I could say that Debbie is my friend. I know mm-hmm. that it wouldn't have happened. I wish I could have met Debbie. We have so many things in common. We are uh, Latina women that we want it right now, not yesterday, right now. We have no patience. Um, <laughs> Debbie was a perfectionist, and I feel like I'm a perfectionist too. So with Debbie, it became 
more than a story to me, but covering my friend's disappearance. I remember I, I was covering the case so much that I would, drive, I would be driving home, and we talk about this in the book. I'm driving home, and I, and I cannot stop thinking about, about Debbie and, and worrying, what is this dancer? And when they found her car, her car was found not too far from where I lived. So just so, just so many details, and I started getting so involved in the story. And when, when the opportunity came uh, from Diana to write the book, it was just perfect because we had so much information. And we not only talk about Debbie's story in the, in the book, of course, she's the center of it, but we talk about the issues of domestic violence, which mm-hmm. is just, just by looking at the statistics I was looking at the other day, every nine seconds a woman is beaten in the United States. 50% of women in the world will be victims of domestic violence at one point of their life. So it just became a topic of concern to me, and now I try to be a little bit more um, focused on those kinds of stories when I report on for the newscast. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was uh, her family's reaction after she went, to Las Vegas, and did they know that she was involved in this relationship at a certain point in time? At first, the family said, no, don't go to Vegas. And actually, the sister, Celeste, the one that I got close to, she uh-huh. um, she was not really okay with Debbie. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was her little sister. And even though the family, the whole family didn't live in Baltimore anymore, and it was just mm-hmm. Debbie in Baltimore, uh, Celeste felt that Debbie was safe because they had friends there. Uh, Debbie knew the city. And when Debbie said, I'm moving to Las Vegas, first of all, it's a party town. My little sister is changing careers. How is this going on? Um, I really don't know where she lived. Debbie did, uh, Celeste didn't get to visit often because Celeste has children. Um, so, no, the family was never okay with her being in Las Vegas. Never, never. And ben, they so didn't know about the did they communicate? Did they communicate, you know, at least her sister and she? I mean, yeah. did she maintain communication with her sister? Yes. They During were, all they were, this? It, yeah, they're a very conservative, Christian, uh, good family. So they always kept in touch. Debbie was really, really close to Celeste and her little boys. She would go every Christmas. And this Debbie disappeared on December 12th. Debbie would always go every Christmas to see her sister in mm-hmm. Atlanta. And um and she of course didn't make it that Christmas and the little boys, her her nephews, which were were just so they were they were so excited because Aunt Debbie was going to visit them. So it was a very tragic Christmas for the family. Yeah. And and she was missing. Well, why don't why don't we get into the actual circumstances, like maybe a, a, you know the the day or two before leading up to the actual crime and some of what went on in the trial? Because in fact, you know, it's amazing to me that you you held off you held off so that there was a resolution and and you're on your third publisher. I mean, a lot of people might have kind of knuckled under and said, okay, we'll do it now. But you didn't, and I commend you for that because maybe it made it a much better um, account of her life. Yeah, yeah. Well, the case it was it was just we we kind of started the book 
just uh, it's it's told through my eyes as a, as a reporter. So mm-hmm. we we tell you like the book starts with me getting a message from Debbie's sister. I'm sorry, from Debbie's best friend, saying, Carolina, um, I know you work on the news. Could you please help me? My best friend uh, did not show up at the show today. And that day that Debbie disappeared was a big day for Debbie. She was going to be the main dancer of that of the show Fantasy. So her best friend knew how hard Debbie had worked, and she wouldn't have missed that for anything. Right. So this is when the best friend calls me, and what happened was, Debbie had gone to the morning rehearsal. She showed up. Then they had a night rehearsal before the actual show, and she didn't show up because she went to her boyfriend's house. She told her roommate that she was going to watch an episode of Dexter. Imagine Dexter, those (laughs) very tragic. Serial killers. Yeah, I know. So apparently she went to the boyfriend's house, and they were watching Dexter. And this is when she tells him, hey, I know that you have not stopped seeing your other girlfriend. They got into a very strong argument, and this is when Jason strangled Debbie. When his roommate showed up to his house, Debbie was already laying on the floor, almost naked, and she was already dead. So and he Jason, was there? The roommate, uh, no, no, he had left. Okay, the roommate had, how about, was, was the boyfriend there when the they discovered her or he had left? Well, no, the, the boyfriend was the one that killed her. Right. Okay. So I'm just, Debbie, De, De, Debbie goes to her boyfriend's house. Right. Her boyfriend had a roommate. His roommate had to go somewhere. When the roommate come, comes back, he sees Debbie already dead okay. on the floor. The roommate finds her. Okay. I got it. Yeah. Yep. So, I see. Um, yeah, Debbie's already dead. Uh, Jason had killed her. Mm-hmm. Jason did not know what to do with the body. He 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 what he said he was afraid to call the police. He didn't want to go to jail. He had just killed a woman inside his house. So this is when Jason and the roommate... They go to Home Depot, and they buy a handsaw, and they dismember the body. <sighs> it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. They dismember the body, and they kept the body inside Jason's garage overnight. The body started leaking and smelling bad. It was decomposing. So Jason uh, told his roommate, what do we do? So they go online, and they check what can we do to hide this body? So they find out that, according to them, the best way was to get plastic containers and get cement. So they got the body in pieces, they put it in different containers, and they covered it with cement. They went to an abandoned house in Las Vegas. In 2010, the economy everywhere, but mostly in Las Vegas, the economy was really bad. So you could drive around and see so many houses that were abandoned. People would get mm-hmm. evicted to their mortgages. So a lot of the houses in the area of North Las Vegas were abandoned. Jason mm-hmm. and his friend, they break a window and they bring these containers with Debbie's body and they hit him inside a closet. That's it. <sighs> According to them, nobody would ever find out. 
me as a reporter, I recall talking to Jason on different occasions, and he says, oh, yeah, I'm really worried about my girlfriend. She really passed by that day, but she left. I, I, I'm worried about her. If you know anything, please let me know. He was cooperating with the authorities. He he seemed calm, calmer than I expected him to be. If his girlfriend is missing, I I, I really thought he was going to be a little bit more worried. But he seemed okay. A month mm-hmm. after is when his best friend goes to the police and says, I'm going to tell you where Debbie's body is if you give me immunity. His, so best, his friend? best friend sold him out. Wow. That's incredible. Now, Delilah, does this sound familiar? John Ferrick spoke about Dixie's last stand. Do you remember right, with regards right. to Heidi? Oh, yeah. Doesn't this sound familiar? Are it you does. familiar it, with you know, John's, yeah, John's book, Carolina? No, no, I, I, I haven't. I don't have it yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm you very need excited to, talk to read it. John Ferrick. <laughs> Yeah, well, it just I know. seems to be such a common yeah. thing anymore that you see, you know, you see this type of murder, dismemberment, hiding bodies, and uh, it just happens so often that it's, oh, yes. it's, it's horrible. Very, yeah, it, it really is. But, you know, I think even more so, it, to me, it goes back to what kind of a person can do that and then just have a normal conversation, you know? Yeah. There's, the whole psychology of it is just astounding. And, again, there's many of these people that are walking among us who have the potential to do something like this and then, you know, just go on about their business. I, I, kind yeah. Of yeah. I, I mean, you, you never know. I mean, what what is it? What is in the makeup of this person that they they could actually? Well, you said from the very beginning that he was a narcissistic personality with with all that stuff. So you know, I don't know. I'm not going to trust anybody that loves himself too much. That's all I could say. It's true. No, he he was just. It was more. It was more about himself. He already had, as I said, the police had already showed up to his house on many occasions on domestic violence towards Debbie. He was the aggressor on many of the occasions. So his bosses, he used to work for a very big show. It was the Beatles show. Uh, anyone that has gone to Vegas ah. and has seen the show Love, he was yep. one of the main characters in the Cirque du Soleil. It's for, you, for someone to become part of the cast, of the main cast of those shows, mm-hmm. it really takes a lot of time. So, And, of course, these this, this big hotels in Las Vegas and shows, they don't want any bad press. He was the character, yeah. uh, if, if you guys or even any of the listeners have seen the show, he used to be Sugar Plum. He's the character that shows up with the drums during the show. So his bosses had already said, Jason, we know that you've gotten in trouble with domestic violence. One more complaint that we get, one more, and you're going to get kicked out. So when she showed up mm-hmm. to his house and they get into mm-hmm. this argument, she says to him, according to him, she says, you know what, I'm going to call the police now. I'm going to call the police. When she says that, and he just he just goes crazy, and he kills her. After he kills her, he's like, what am I going to do? So he was just thinking about himself. He needed well, to hide. So- he wanted to hide that body. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I have to put in a little reality here. What girlfriend would be, sm- would be foolish enough to 
be watching a, a TV show about a serial killer, knowing that her boyfriend is, uh, you know, their relationship is so tumultuous, and start an argument when you're watching Dexter, and then say you're going to call the police and not think that you're going to put yourself at risk. I mean, come on. But oh I, my I, God! You know what? I don't. I don't think like it's. I, I think it's like when we watch a movie and it happens many times that we watch a movie and you're like suffering with the character and someone is in the house and they want to go to the room where the person is and you're like thinking at home, please don't do that, please don't do that. I think it was the same thing. When you're in love with someone, you don't really you don't really see. And she was an attorney and she knew better, but she was just so in love with him that she didn't feel the bad things. It happens a lot with with victims of domestic violence that mm-hmm. her, their husbands, their significant others abuse them, but they don't see it, and their family members are like, please leave that relationship. And of course they, they don't see it. They're always yeah, thinking, no, he's going to change. Oh, he will never do that again. They believe yes. it when they say, I'm not going to hit you again. So they right. just, they, they, they're just obsessed and blindfolded with the love for this man. And that's yeah. what happened to her. That, that's such an awful change. Do you, I don't know if you want to reveal what happened with regard to the trial. We have about 10 minutes left to our show, and I do want to get uh, just a little bit, maybe even a little bit about what what you're in the process of doing with your, with your next book uh, because that is intriguing as well. But, but I did want to remind people too quickly too, any of the listeners that, First 20 listeners that have been listening for this hour, you can go to wildbluepress.com, put Shattered Lives in the subject line, and you will get Carolina's book as well as Brad Nichols' book for free. So what a deal. And then please be sure to go to Amazon and and Goodreads and all of those with reviews because it's very important for them um, and reciprocity. Um, so anyway, just wanted to insert that again before the, the show ends. So what is it that you would like to share the most salient features of maybe the trial process without maybe without giving it all away so that people will buy the book? <laughs> yeah, it was it was a really it was a really hard trial for the family, especially because these men a lot of the details, a lot of the questions that we had prior to the trial were answered. These men continued to lie during the trial, the family was really difficult. Even the medical examiner said that um, with 25 years of experience in in the medical in, in, in that in that business, it was the worst autopsy that he had ever done in his life in his career. So it was really uh-huh. difficult. I hope that people can really go and read the book. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. The name is Dancing on Her Grave. Follow me on, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. I'm under Carolina Sarasa, S-A-R-A-S-S-A. And, you know, so in my life, always angels come up. I, and one of these angels is Steve Jackson. He's one of the owners and a very well-known writer for Wild Blue Press. And he was actually one of the writers and authors that gave us a blurb for our for our book, a review. And this is how I got to know Steve, and he has been great helping me write my second book that tentatively will be called Fear Was Not an Option. It's also a book about real life, and it's a book that centers on two men. Uh, this this guy called William was born in Milwaukee. This other guy called Chris, born in L.A., 
they get into gangs, and the way they've changed their lives is just amazing. Um, about two years ago, William was able to be the hero when he evacuated Santa Monica College during a shooting, and that's how I got to know him. On Debbie's book, as I mentioned, it didn't have a, a happy ending to it, but in this other book, it has a very, very happy, very motivational, and I really wanted readers to to really read something that they say, okay, if this man can do it, I can also do it. Uh, William, These that were one-time gang members, right, Carolina? And, yeah, and very they, notorious gang. They rose above and, and had stellar careers and gave back. Is, is that not the, the premise? Yeah, they uh, they they were part of the very notorious gangs in either in Milwaukee and also in LA. And now one of them is an actor. I'm sure many of you have seen this guy, Chris Del Fosse. He's an actor in Hollywood. He's the face of a lot of a big um, brands for commercials. And William, he recently got an award for one of the best photographers in the country. He takes a lot of pictures of uh, gang members. But mm-hmm. the pictures want to send a message of why these people go into gangs, the lack of opportunities, and what we can do as a society to end that. He, they, they, they say that they are not former gang members because still go to these gangs to help people, to give them food, to give them opportunities, to try to get them out of that world. So it's a very inspiring story, and I, and I really hope that. Uh, we can publish it soon with Wild Group Press, but as you said in the beginning, I love the fact that they can still promote people writing and help authors and people that always wanted to write a book and do not know how to. Steve is great in helping you how to do that, and I hope people can go to their page and, and check them out. And a lot of a lot of well-known writers have gone to Wild Group Press because of how great they are. Right, and yeah, it's it's a very unique opportunity for either people that are very, very well known, and and those that are not very well known. So I think he he bases it on on talent and uniqueness and creativity and and all of that. I mean, it seems to me in the in this seven week series that we've done, and it's been tremendously you know rewarding to get to know. All of you, um, you know, on this basis, and with I, I like I say, I'm a prolific writer as well. I've not completed my book; it's kind of stalled right now for some financial reasons. But I, I hope to do that, and I hope that we can maintain connections, all of us, because I think it's really important. But you know, I, I, I just listening to you describe this, I can hear your passion. I can hear that, you know, you do your job very well, and I, I see very good things happening to you in the future. What uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, is, um, is Dancing on Her Grave now, is, is, is there going to be an English version and a Spanish version for both aspects of the community, or what? Well, the book now is only in, it's only in English. It was only uh-huh. in English for uh, in the beginning. But yeah. uh, as I've after I've um, gone to Spanish um, media to get in, to do interviews, they always ask, "Are you going to do it in Spanish?" And yeah, you know what? I think it would be great to also do it in Spanish. Debbie was a Latina woman from from Puerto Rico, and um, yeah. and I feel that this story could be really. Uh, you know what? The the other day I had a conversation, a very interesting conversation with a with a mother 
they came up to me in a story. She said, hey, Carolina, I see you in the news. I heard you're going to publish a book. I want to buy it for my daughter. And I'm like, how old is your daughter? She said, 12. And I, when I started writing the book, think about writing it for a 12-year-old. Um, uh-huh. She said, yeah, yeah, for, it's for my daughter because she has, this, she has this guy she likes. And really, we don't really pay attention to our mothers when they say, don't go out with that guy. He's not for you. He seems dangerous. But if, if someone, if a teenager, if someone young can read that, can read that book and really see themselves reflected on Debbie's story, I think mm-hmm. I think it could change their lives. So, Absolutely. Yeah, so maybe that you, want, said, you want to give it to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so she well, said your book could be a manual for teenagers. And I said, you know what, I think that's a very good idea for girls to see that this stuff really happens and it's just not something that moms make up about domestic violence. It's just something that happens every day in our society. Yeah, well, I don't, I'm just in a rush to me. I'm wondering, do you know of um, either of you, uh, whether there, you know, there's all these series of books for children, you know, in, in middle school and high school. Is there any series that you know of dealing with domestic violence for, like, adolescents at the adolescent level? I've never really, you know, tried to look for that. Do, do you know? You know what? No, I, I I don't know any about that. But thank God, right now nowadays we have the internet, and even right. even if people don't buy my book, just for someone to go online, there's so many resources available. You just type in domestic violence in in in, in, in any language, and you just find so many organizations that have they have workshops, they have one eight hundred numbers. It's you can always call the police department anonymous. Uh, even if the person is undocumented, they can still call the police. So there's so many resources available, and I feel that also in school, they should always stress out that this happens, um, that this is dangerous. Also, this also affects men. So also tell the boys that there's many men victim of domestic violence. Right, and it certainly is true. We have our own... um so-called evidentiary abuse affidavit that perhaps maybe we can um, tell you about it might might be good for some of your listeners as well. But with that, we're going to have to unfortunately close out the hour, and it's just gone by so fast, and it's it's been such a pleasure. I want to thank you so much. We're, we'll, we'll be sure to to keep this radio show going. It's in the archives for repeated listening, and please do keep in touch with me. Perhaps we can have you back about your other book as it you know as as that comes out and please do everyone go and get her book and 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 please do write reviews go to wild blue press because all of these authors have been stellar and as a while we're just wondering if you have any party comments before we close out i really well, want to i just want to thank carolina it's been a Oh, it's been a okay. great show and another great yeah. author from Wild Blue Press. So, um, yeah, stay in touch with us, Carolina, and yeah. I, I may have some information to send to you as well, and I'll get your email yeah. address from Donna off air. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, and uh, and I hope our listeners can go ahead and get the book or at least go online and find out any information about domestic violence. And for sure, if someone wants to write a book, Go ahead to Wild Blue, Wild Blue Press and Steve Jackson. Yeah. He's a great man that he would help them. Yeah. 
Hey, Rick, your, your, um, your website address again, quickly. Yes, it's at Carolina Saras. Mm-hmm. S as in Sam, A, R, A, S, S, A. Um, Carolina Saras, um, in all social media, social media, um, social media obsessed. So they can just find me in any okay. social media available right now. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you so much, and I wish you a very happy Easter, and, and, and we'll be in touch, okay? So um, I want to say good evening to, to my audience, and stay tuned next Saturday for another edition of Shattered Lives. Have a good week, everyone.